Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Galloway Law Podcast. My name is Thomas Galloway. Dr. Jonathan Asid is a professor of political science at Iowa State University, and his research focuses on Chinese journalists and how the Chinese government censors the media. Today, he returned to the podcast to discuss his paper, Why Chinese Print Journalists Embrace the Internet. Now, we discuss a lot of the background of the paper in the podcast, so it is not necessary for you to read the paper, but if you're interested, it is linked below. If you enjoyed this interview, please subscribe and share with a friend. It really does help. And now, to the interview. Could you start by explaining a bit about what created the drive to do the research specific to this paper? Sure. Uh, well, you know, in the West, and the United States in particular, we sort of think about the relationship of the internet and traditional media as being a confrontational one, right? Mm-hmm. That uh, the internet has stolen, the way the journalists see it, right, has stolen revenue, has, um, you know, cre- removed the gatekeeper role, and so this is a very antagonistic relationship. And there are surveys that media organizations and academics have done sort of asking American or West, other Western journalists, like, to what extent has the internet impacted your work? And they always say negative things. They're always saying, you know, this is a disaster, right, it killed revenue, it's destroying journalism. Um, and... Um, a lot of that's true, I think. Uh, but in China, my co-worker, my co-author, and I, uh, Professor Maria Raknikova, Georgia State University, um, we, when we were in China doing our separate research, um, we found that the journalists we were talking to were much more optimistic about the role of the Internet. And so we started to sort of, you know, notice this difference, right, and uh, wonder what accounted for it. Right. So what is the typical ownership of newspapers and publications? Who are typically the owners? Uh, It's a complicated question. Technically, in China, every media organization has to have a party state organization sponsoring that. Um, That doesn't mean ownership, but it does mean that it's, it's, we'd call it a managing unit. Basically, they're responsible legally for content produced by the media organization under their umbrella. And so this means that in theory, there are no private media organizations in China okay. because a private media organization can't get someone to sponsor them, a, a government organization to sponsor them. In practice, there is a lot of private investment in a lot of different media companies. So what will happen is, um, for example, there's, a, there's a, a Chinese news magazine that's very prominent called Caixin, which does um, financial reporting. It would be like a Bloomberg or yeah. a, um, a Wall Street Journal. Um, but but not daily. Um, and uh, Caixin um, was a fi- is their official sponsor is the China Securities uh, Regulator. Uh, but in reality, it's a private media organization funded by private investors. And there's some sort of I don't know exactly what their split is, but there's some sort of ownership split between the two. Right. So. Uh, but to have a newspaper in China in particular is very, or any, I mean, television is much more restrictive. But even to have a newspaper, which is sort of medium restrictive among media organizations, you have to have this party, party state sponsor who are legally responsible for you. You have to have at least $300,000, 300000 RMB in registered capital. You have to have a lot of different approvals. And so in practice, there is private investment in the media, but it's all massively regulated by the state. Okay. So, about so basically, all the publications are media spo- or government sponsored. 
It's 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 so tricky, right? We right. we think about the, you know we talk about the Chinese state media, and there are organizations. There's, for example, there's the mouthpiece of the Communist Party, People's Daily, right. which is a state paper, a state right run by the party state. Um, but then there are organizations like Tyson, which are officially sponsored by the securities regulator, but in practice run as a private company. Right. So it's. It seems like a simple question, but it's actually a complicated <laughs> okay. one. Yeah. yeah. Do we have any idea how many publications or what percentage are directly a mouthpiece for the Chinese Communist Party? Uh, sure. It's not very many. Not very many. Um, uh, you know, there's People's Daily. And every province has a whatever daily. So Sichuan okay. province has a Sichuan daily, and that is run by the Provincial Party Committee. Um so there are, you know, a 35-odd of those, plus there are a few other national. There's a national broadcaster, CCTV, which has a number of channels. Um, so those are all direct state mouthpieces. There's also the official national press. I mean, they're technically, there are two press agencies. Um, there's Xinhua News Agency, and there's also China News Service, and these are both party organs as well. Right. Um, so... Roughly, perhaps in the forty to fifty range for okay. direct, at all level, at at national and provincial levels, and then there'll be stuff even below that. Right. How aware are the people who are reading the publications? Very aware that this is the case that it is a direct mouthpiece. Yes. Okay. For these, they are. Yes. Right. So what kind of change did you notice as you're conducting your research from two thousand six to two thousand fifteen? Uh, just in the press in general. Yeah. I mean, things are much worse today for, okay. for, for journalists. So in 2006, for example, journalists had much more space to do controversial things. They had much more space to push the boundaries of acceptable coverage. Uh, today, under Xi Jinping, that's basically closed. Uh, and so um, the number of investigative journalists in China, which was never very high, um, one survey um, uh, from around 2006 found that there was something like 2,000 investigative journalists in China, pure investigative journalists in China. Today, that's, that'll be down to a few hundred. Right. Um, just because it's it's uh, the political walls have closed, and it's a lot more difficult for journalists to do anything that approaches sensitivity. Right. Uh, is it likely that the Chinese government is okay with controversial political stories being reported online just because it might get lost in the rest of the Internet? Or are they, would they be worried about how it can reach way more people? Both, um, and it also differs by level of government. Generally, right. <clears throat> inside the central government, the big fight is between more information and less. Um, but that doesn't mean that there are people inside the central administration who want more a freer internet and a freer media for local levels because that gives the central government information. Right. The central government is in China is starved of information. They have a very hard time. No, it's a vast country. The central administration is very, very tiny. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, there are perhaps 30,000 people working in the central level ministries in Beijing, uh, which is about as many people as work at the USDA, for example, right? And this is for a much larger country. Um, and this doesn't include all of the other U.S. government right, right. organizations. Um, and so this, the central government in general is uh, starved of information, especially about mis local misdeeds. And so there, there is a... a kind of a push from a lot of people inside the central government to open up lower levels of press to report on misdeeds so the central government can solve it. However, that's maybe half or less, certainly less, less influential half of the central government. The other half of the central government are Xi Jinping types who just want to close everything down. That's the central government. You know, governments at lower levels generally just want 
a restricted press. They're not interested in having an open press because um, they want to control it because that helps their promotion prospects. Right. If one publication publication is doing investigation into a controversial story, mm-hmm. is it likely that other uh, publications are investigating that as well to help support them, or is it more of a, you, know, you guys get in trouble by yourself, we're just going to stay out of the way? It depends on the issue. Um, Anyone doing blazing a new trail and investigating a new topic is doing something risky, right? Uh, especially now. So probably they're the only people doing that. But if it blows up online, if something becomes a happening online, an event, a meme, um, then the floodgates are open and lots of people do reporting. So um, both happen. Right. So at least in our country, from my perspective, which is somewhat limited, but it seems that you know, a few years ago, people were believing everything they read on the internet, and the whole fake news happened, and now we're just calling everything fake news. Mm-hmm. What is the general sentiment among the Chinese people towards what they read online? Uh, trust is, uh, you know, I, it's, it's interesting. Uh, trust is relatively low. China has higher levels, in general, has higher levels of social trust than the United States okay. does. So if you ask people, do you trust your neighbors? Do you trust the people around you? In China... By most reputable surveys, the numbers are actually quite a bit higher. People have higher trust, but that doesn't apply to the government necessarily. People are suspicious of news sources, but just being suspicious of something doesn't negate its impact. So people, in, in surveys and in experimental work, people have indicated that they don't really trust the official media, but it still shapes their opinion anyway because mm-hmm. there's no alternative on a lot of issues. Right. So, initially, when they're just print publications, you had these edgier sources who were probably willing to push a boundary a little bit. I imagine that since the internet, those the internet has been maybe a little more edgier. Sure. And then what yeah. has happened to those print publications who are initially the ones who are pushing the boundaries, and they seem to be lost in the middle a little bit, maybe losing their niche audience. Uh, you know, a lot of it has not been because of the audience effects, but because of political effects. Okay. So, for example, for a long time, the boldest, the most aggressive um, newspaper in China was something called Southern Weekend, which was a weekly published in, in Guangzhou in southern China. Um, the, the, part, the government, the central government, and more recently the Guangdong Party Committee, the provincial party committee, have really gone after them. Uh, and so there have been successive, you know, every six months there's an editorial change. Journalists have been fired. Journalists from the paper have wound up in prison. And over time, it's just really beaten the paper down. And so that's not, it's not an audience effect, right? Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, a, yeah. that's a censorship effect. Right. Um, but, it, I mean, it is true that, of course, I mean, to a certain extent, yes. I mean, of course, a lot of stuff gets reported online. But in general, the party state is happier with controversial issues showing up first in the media, in the newspapers, and then moving to the Internet. Yeah. Because it's easier for them to control the narrative that way. Right. So the government really doesn't like it when... They don't like surprises. The Chinese government hates surprises, um, and so uh, especially nasty ones. And so they've... um, There's a rule now that's less than five years old that says, for example, that anything, any rumor... And a rumor here in practice means anything that the government doesn't like. It doesn't matter matter if it's true. But a rumor that is, um, let me think, liked more than 5,000 times or forwarded, no, I'm sorry, excuse me, that's viewed more than 5,000 times or forwarded or commented on more than 500 times is a crime, is a state crime. 
And so people are now in prison for this, for forwarding so-called rumors, um, which are true. So one of the biggest rumors that was that, that people got in trouble for was um, saying that there was um, huge problems in the stock market. Uh, and this was weeks before the Chinese stock market, like, really, really tanked in 2016. And, and the, the, the journalists who reported this went to prison for, for spreading rumors. I mean, the rumors were accurate, right? But... Right. I went to prison anyway, as, as did some regular internet users. Right. Uh, so how has the fact that it's easier to take down an online uh, article than it would be to retract a print publication, how has that changed the media environment? Um, it's mostly, I mean, in some ways it's changed it for the better. So it's true that you don't, you don't have to, like, seize an entire issue now in pulpit, which is expensive right. for a newspaper to do. Um but um, it also means that it's easier. I think that the, this means that the party state is more willing to do it, right? They're sort of more willing to um, demand that articles disappear in a way that they perhaps were a bit more reluctant to do before. Right. Because it's free now to do that. Yeah, that's easy, yeah. So how has the ability to get feedback online that they may not have been able to as a print publication, how has that changed? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely changed journalists' work routines. Right. So 10 years ago, journalists got their tips from people calling in. They got their tips from their contacts. They got their tips from other reporters. So there's something called the spilling news technique, where if you are censored by your local government on something, sometimes people will pass, will kick a story to somebody else. This never happens in the Western press, right? No one gives up a scoop to their competitor. Uh, but in China, it happens pretty regularly. Um, and so... Um, that's, you know, so that's how journalists often got their stories in the past. Now it's all internet, right? Now and now they're getting their stories from online just like everybody else. And so, you know, in a certain way that's democratized news gathering. I, I think it's made the Chinese print business a bit less elite focused, right? They're interested more in the happenings of ordinary people and less in what their network of journalists is telling them is important, which is something. But the media have also lost their gatekeeping role, um, which is, um, depending on what how you look at this particular issue, is either problematic or perhaps wonderful. Right. Could you talk about the role that internet portals play in China? Sure, yeah, internet portals are hugely important, much more important in China than they are in the U.S. Um, you're too young to remember, but back, back when America first got internet, everyone went through AOL, and that was like an incredibly important portal in the 90s. Um, and so China, in a certain way, never grew out of that, or their internet is such that people get most of their, do their, a lot of their interactions online through these big portals, through Sina, through uh, Sohu, through um, uh, Tencent and other sort of providers that are all in one-stop shops, right? I mean, we have that. There's Yahoo, right. but nobody uses it anymore. Right. But in China, people still do. And so these uh, portals are really um, are the gateway to the Chinese Internet. Portals also are not legally allowed to do their own original reporting. They have to legally re rely on so-called uh, reprints, zhuanzai, from um, media outlets. Um, and, I mean, in practice, there are ways that they kind of skirt the rules. But it does mean that um, there is still a big role for traditional media to play because the portals, are, which are usually important, are reprinting content from everybody else. Right. It, it mentioned that the uh, portals pay about 15,000 US dollars. Uh, that, that's, that, that's, that's, that's old. Now, okay, that's right? old. I, I don't have the current figures right. on Even that. at the time, though, that 
Does that seem low? For it was low, too? yeah. It wasn't It wasn't much. Um, but this was also, you know, I mean, we did this research now, yeah, ten, more than 10 years ago, right? right? And so at the time, people, the news outlets were still getting most of their money from advertising and subscription. Right. And so the the 100 or 150,000 renminbi they were getting from the portals was a pittance in their revenue, but it didn't matter because it wasn't cannibalizing their revenue. Right. So now that the internet is cannibalizing their revenue, I'm sure that fees, reprint fees are higher, but it's not nearly offsetting the loss in eyeballs that the traditional media have suffered. Right. Uh, the paper mentions a lot about the uh, Twitter-like portals or yeah, uh, microblogs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Weibo. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's a basically a Twitter clone with a lot, with some other features added that we don't have here. Um, that uh, really blew up on the scene um, starting about uh, 2011, but it peaked in 2012 or 2013, and since then, I mean, it still has hundreds of millions of users, right. but has declined relatively in influence to another platform, which is called WeChat. Okay. And WeChat is harder to study from an academic perspective because uh, Weibo, the micro, the micro Twitter, if you like, um, everything's public. It's like Twitter, so it's right. easy to collect data. It's easy to scrape. Um, WeChat is not. WeChat is private groups. People set up groups for who... It's more like Facebook. Right. So they set up groups for who can see their content. And so it's more difficult to study. And so there's been less research on that just because it's harder to get the content. Right. And so the uh, Chinese government probably preferred it more like it is now, prefers it more like it is now. Yes. I mean, WeChat, you know, if there's if somebody does says something critical about the government or exposes something embarrassing... Its reach is going to be generally more limited on WeChat than it is on Weibo because right. it's not spread, it's not open to everybody. Right. Uh, on Weibo, did you have to provide like your name and any information like that? Uh, at the time, at the time you didn't. Now, yes. Uh, okay. <clears throat> technically, since since uh, twenty twelve or so, so there's been something there's something they call real name registration, um, and the Chinese government has been pushing this. Uh, there have been a whole rounds of this. It, it's it's clear that it hasn't worked. Or they wouldn't have kept emphasizing, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this. Um, so, for example, when I used to go to internet cafes in China, I mean, I didn't have a local ID card, but all 100% of the time, the internet cafe employees would just make up a Chinese name for me and make up an ID code and just put that in the system, and that was good enough. That doesn't work anymore. By all accounts now, the real name registration system is much more serious. Okay. And so... Uh, now, most or perhaps virtually all users are verified. That is to say, the company knows who they are. Right. It seemed that the when Weibo was more popular, that the journalists were using it to communicate with each other mm-hmm. and um, perhaps share information. Can they really do that with WeChat as easily? They can, sure, because they're private journalist groups. Okay, yeah. Um, the journalists, as you'd expect, are a highly networked bunch. Yeah. They're all talking to each other all the time, and so they have private WeChat groups where they share information. Right. Sure. Right. I mean, in some ways, it's probably more convenient for them because it's not public. Yeah, that makes sense. So, as far as upcoming projects, do you have anything you're working on right now? Um, I, I yeah, I mean, I have a project that I'm sort of slowly puttering through, where I look at uh, economic censorship. So normally we think about okay. censorship as being politically driven. Uh, it turns out that it, Chinese economic performance data is often censored, um, and in particular, what I found is that um, there is 
there's a group of now about 90 or 85, 90 companies uh, controlled by the Chinese government through an organization called SASAC, the State Administration, no, wait, uh, the State Asset Supervision and something committee. Um, I forget what the exact English name is. Um, and uh, it's the, uh, it's, it's called the Guozui. Anyway, um, they... Their companies, which are enormous and collectively have more than a trillion dollars in market value, colossal companies, some of the biggest companies in the world are part of SASAC, um, they get a lot less press coverage than the equivalent private companies of the same size. And so I'm interested in sort of trying to tease that out and figuring out, I mean, I suspect and can sort of partially prove that it's because um, the Chinese government is censoring economic data about these companies. Right. That's interesting, right? That, that there's, is there's interesting. economic censorship, yeah. especially because it affects, uh, potentially it'll affect a lot of Westerners. Now there are a lot of, it's just starting to happen that Chinese um, companies are entering Western stock portfolios right. through things like CalPERS, the California retirement system, enormous California retirement system. So there are a whole bunch of companies now that are starting to list, they're starting to incorporate Chinese stocks into their global weightings, which means that Western investors are exposed to these. In practice, most Chinese stocks are government companies, or SOEs, or state-owned okay. companies. And so if the government is preferentially censoring them, um, it means that it's hiding economic bad news in a way that can affect Wisconsin retirees, you know? Right. And, yeah, I, uh, I just finished reading uh, a book about the financial crisis here, and even... Here we seem to, we didn't really have a good idea what was happening in a lot of situations. Of course. So yeah, you so it seems like we could be that very similar situation could happen on a mass scale in China. Certainly, in yes. Future. That's right. Uh, so uh, I had another question about. The Although Chinese. the government props up its companies too, so it's not okay. it's not the same as Lehman Brothers going bankrupt. Right, 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 right. Because in this case, Lehman Brothers is owned by the Chinese state, and they so it doesn't go bankrupt. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, I think that's all the questions I have. All right. Great. Well, thanks for your time. Thank you. You can learn more about Dr. Jonathan Hasid's work by visiting jonathanhasid.com. Thanks for listening.